I was going to do that. But since Jeremy had already done it, I thought I would let him. What a, what a great word. This weekend we begin a new series titled Sola. Sola Scriptura, Solus Christus, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Deo Gloria. That may ring a bell. I kind of hope it does. In a couple of weeks, we recognize Reformation Sunday. And for a few weeks leading up to and a few weeks coming out of uh, a Sunday that marks a Reformation in the church, we're going to go back to basics. And we're going to talk about five solas. Now, it was a few years ago that I had the opportunity to visit the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. It's actually there on Reformation Day. It was so cool. Um, it was there on October 31st, 1517, that a really relatively unknown parish priest named Martin Luther uh, decided to protest the practice of indulgences, the selling of forgiveness by the church. And so he nailed 95 theses to the doors of the castle church. I, would you like to see those doors like today, the way they look? Actually, we snapped a picture when I was there. And, uh, and so the 95 theses are actually inscribed on there. And I'm doing my best Martin Luther. I don't know if that's how he nailed them on there, but that's kind of my, my deal. So um, we decided we're not going to do a 95-part series. But instead, we're going to look at these five solas, which were really rallying cries of the Reformation. But more importantly than that, are right at the very epicenter of what we believe as Christ followers. And so I'm excited about these next five weeks. If you have a Bible, you can turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, as we start out with... Sola Scriptura. Now, I've never preached from my grandfather's Bible, but this is it. It's a big book. They made them big back in the day. No thin line. Uh, 77 years old, this Bible. And uh, I don't know if you can see it real well, but oh man, this is a well-read Bible. In fact, it is taped together. I mean, it is, it is falling apart. And uh, I mean, I, you know, it's funny because... Um, I, I don't even remember exactly what the old platitude was, but, you know, if, if your Bible's falling apart, your life probably isn't, <laughs> something like that. Um, or maybe a way of saying it is, uh, man, a well-lived life, probably a well-read Bible. And I had a godly grandfather who led a well-lived life, and he had a well-read Bible. And so every once in a while, I'll do devotions out of his Bible. It's really one of my most treasured possessions. And what's neat for me is to see what he underlined, to see the books that had to be taped together because he read them so frequently, and to even, he he had a shaking condition. I don't even know what the medical condition was, but you couldn't even read his handwriting by the end of his life because he just, it just shook. It was like scribbling. And so much of it, I can't even discern what it says, but, uh, but occasionally I can make out what's written in the margins of his Bible. And uh, for what it's worth, um, 
I have a number of Bibles that over the years I've read through at different seasons. And I found that sometimes when I want to begin a new spiritual season, when I'm saying, God, I want you to do something new in my life, every once in a while I'll go out and actually buy a new Bible. And it's a way of me kind of tracking as I read through it. And then sometimes if I read through it more than once, sometimes I'll, I'll change color of pens or change the way that I underline or mark things. But uh, I sure hope that, uh, I don't know, maybe 77 years from now, uh, someone will be preaching out of one of my Bibles. I don't know. But uh, I wanted to preach out of it because uh, I, I think... Um, adds a little bit of weight to this particular verse that we're going to read. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Now, I'm going to read it in two versions. Here's the, the King James. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Here's the NIV. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Up until my senior year of college, I was not a reader. Uh, I read books assigned by my teachers for my classes, period. Um, Probably read a couple of dozen books Uh, as a kid growing up, and honestly, most of them were sports books with lots of pictures and statistics. Um, I was not a reader, and then on one of our basketball trips, man, I don't even know why, I picked up an 800-page biography of Albert Einstein, and I became a voracious reader. I read about 250 books that year, Um, and, and then I averaged about 150 to 200 books a year for the next 10 years. Um and still read about 75 to 100 books a year. Don't read as much. When I'm in a writing season, I don't read, but that gives me usually about eight months of the year uh, to read. Now, somewhere along the way, I read or heard that the average author uh, takes about two years. There's about two years of life experience that goes into the average book. Now, I'm sure that there are some books that are a lot more than that and some books that are a lot less, but Let's just say that that a book is about two years of life experience. I remember when I first heard that, I remember thinking to myself, you know, like I'm I'm pretty young, I'm trying to pastor this church, like I don't have a lot of life experience, you know. Um, I, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but maybe vicariously I can grow through reading. And, and then I had this thought, well, if I read 150 books this year, then you know, I'm only a year older, but the truth is I've gained 300 years of life experience. There are about 5,000 books in my library. Now, some of them I've devoured, underlined, folded pages, read them more than once. Some of them I've skimmed. Well, I'm about 10,000 years old. Um, now I don't know. I don't know that I've ever shared that with you when I'm speaking at conferences or talking to pastors. Or le- I mean, I think leaders are readers and readers are leaders. That, in a nutshell, is my philosophy of reading. Now, let me take that and let me apply it or juxtapose it with the Bible because I think um, the Bible is a book that is a library itself. It's in its own category. It's absolutely unique. Uh, Let me just say that I think that this might have more than two years of life experience in it. 
Now, honestly, it was written over 1,600 years. So I suppose you could say, well, it's got 1,600 years of life experience and that makes it unique and there's no other book like it. And wow, that's, that's incredible. But listen, uh, the author is God. It's God breathing. We're going to talk about that. And so the truth is it comes from an omniscient, eternal source. And so I don't think that you can measure it in years. And I think here's what I'm trying to say. When I read books, I gain life experience, and I love that. When I read this book, I don't just gain life experience. It's life-giving. I gain life. It breathes life in it. There's something that's different about it. Books I read, they're, they're passive. This book is not passive. It's proactive. There's something about it that is very different. And I think it comes down to the fact that it's not just a book that was written by a bunch of dead people. It's alive. It's active. It's living. In fact, here's how I like to like to think of it, because we talk a lot about how the Bible is the inspired word of God. Listen, I, there's no other book that inspires like the Bible. And the reason why the Bible inspires is because it's inspired. Um, and the way that 2 Timothy 3.16 says it is that all scripture is God-breathed. Now, that's an interesting phrase. And to really understand it, I think we've got to go all the way back to Genesis 2.7. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into it the breath of of life. It's, it, God breathes into the dust of the earth and it becomes a living being. Now that's pretty incredible. You're inspired dirt. Wow. T- turn to your neighbor and say, you're a holy dirt ball. Something like that. Um, some of you, I just gave you permission to do it. You know, some of you have been wanting to do that. Um, okay, so God breathes into the dust, and the dust becomes a living being. And, you know, I know some of you are here, and you're, you're like, you have this kind of skeptical, kind of scientific mind. And you're like, you expect me to believe that? What's your explanation? You have to have some cosmological argument. Everything came from something. And so whatever it is had to be pretty amazing, pretty miraculous. And Genesis tells us that God breathed into the dust. Well, just as God breathed into the dust, it's the same terminology. God breathed into these writers of Scripture and inspired them with words to write through their personalities, through their circumstances, through their experiences. But we believe when we say that the Bible is inspired by God, that yes, there are more than 40 authors, by the way, from every walk of life, kings and farmers and shepherds and ex-cons and fishermen and prophets who wrote over a span of 1,600 years on three different continents and three different languages. Unbelievable. But there's one author. I mean, see, part of what's amazing about the book is that the, the fact that it, it speaks to thousands of controversial topics, and yet there's absolute harmony. Not, not only that, the fact that 
It's as relevant today as it was a thousand years ago. Um, the, the fact that, I mean, how many books do you know that could be read by people of every age? You know, a six-year-old, a 90-year-old, you know, 47-year-old. They're all reading the same thing. Um, every ethnicity, every occupation, every IQ, everybody here is included. You know, those with that real high IQ and those with the not as high IQ. Um, every personality type. Every political persuasion, unbelievable, equally relevant, read by all of us. Why? Because it's God-breathed. And, and by the way, there's a little qualifier there. Did you catch the word all? Just one little thought if you're taking notes. You can jot this down. Uh, all Scripture is equally inspired, but not all Scripture is equally applicable. It's okay to say that. All of it's inspired, but what you're going to find is that there are different times of your life, like when you're grieving and when you're rejoicing, guess what? You're going to gravitate to different parts of this book, um, depending on your situations and circumstances. When you're fearful, well, you're going to go to certain passages. You know, when, when you're making a big decision, you're going to go to different places, and, and it's equally inspired, but it's not always equally applicable. I think it was Heraclitus who said, uh, you never step into the same river twice. Is that right? <laughs> Georgetown knows, or Georgetown location knows for sure. But um, it, it, Why? Because when you step into that river, it's, it's different. It's flowed to a different point, and you're a different person when you step into it. Well, in the same sense, you never read the same verse of scripture the same way twice. Now, I want to be real careful here. I'm not saying that everybody has their own interpretation and that that's okay. That's not true. Um, what I am saying is that, well, the Jewish rabbi said it this way. Every word of scripture has 70 faces and 600,000 meanings. In other words, it's kaleidoscopic that you can read the same verse at different times in your life and God can bring new revelation. The Bible is kaleidoscopic and it's an endless source of inspiration. And, uh, and, and let's keep going. In fact, the, the next word, it says, um, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. And let's talk about this for a minute. Now, first of all, I would suggest that, you know, most obvious thing is that means maybe we ought to use it. Um, it's kind of a use it or lose it proposition. Uh, if you are not reading scripture, your soul is atrophying. There's just no way around. There is no substitute for it. Um, but it says that it's useful. Now, um, that word, that Greek word means helpful or profitable. It can mean advantageous. In other words, it gives us kind of this unique advantage. But in the simplest and truest sense, I, I think what it means is it works. It, the word works. Now, Isaiah 55 says it this way. Uh, God says, my word will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which I send it forth. It always works. It never returns void. There is a power 
in, in God's word. And I think, you know, part of understanding the word of God is that in John 1, it says, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so it's this, this word logos and, and Jesus is the word, but then we have the word in kind of a written form. And, and then in the very beginning, you have, you know, God speaking four words, let there be light, which, um, you know, according to the Doppler effect, uh, galaxies are still being created at the very edges in the universe. And so we've been able to discover galaxies 15.5 billion light years away that were created by four words. All of this was created by four words. Let there be. If God can do that with four words, his word's powerful. There's nothing that his word can't accomplish. And what's beautiful is that we have it in different forms. And by the way, I think that it's so important for us to not, not just study Holy Scripture, but who inspired Scripture? The Holy Spirit. And, and the same spirit who inspired scripture does what? He illuminates us. And so we have the author who is there to guide us and, and reveal things to us. And it's so important that, man, if you're reading the Holy Scripture without the Holy Spirit, good luck. But those two things in tandem, powerful combination. So we believe that uh, well, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, but beyond that, uh, we believe that it is the authoritative word of God. Um, let, let, me, let me just touch on that. This week, I heard about a study conducted 80,000 people, so a huge mass study, asking them the question, um, what has been the single most useful catalyst for spiritual growth in your life? Now, certainly there's more than one catalyst, but here, here's what um, those who said, this, these weren't the number one answer, small group or uh, worship or sermons or missions trips, like all those things are important and good, but the number one answer far and away was Bible reading. It was the most useful catalyst for spiritual growth in their life. Why? Because it's useful. Um, because it's the most helpful, most profitable thing you can do to grow spiritually. Now, I, I need to say this every once in a while. Um, if you rely upon my sermons for your spiritual diet, I fear for you. You will die of malnutrition. You will die of starvation. Now listen, our teaching team, I'm so grateful. Last couple of weeks were so amazing with Dick Foth. Listen, we're going to do our best to preach biblical sermons that are Christ-centered, that you can digest and, and grow. And, but here's the deal. The Bible was unchained from the pulpit 500 years ago. And you can actually purchase one in any color, any texture, really any size, any size font, any translation you want. And you can read it for yourself. Um, what I'm saying, there is no replacement for just daily Bible reading in your own life. Um, this week, uh, my sister-in-law, Amanda, and my nephew, Joey, were over at our house, and we were sitting around the dinner table, and it was time for Joey to eat, and he's still eating the Gerber stuff. And so I just happened to be holding him. And so It was so fun because it's been years. You know, my kids um, are a little bit older, and so I was holding Joey, and Amanda was, was feeding Joey, you know, and doing the kind of spoon thing, going right into the mouth, and you, you got to scrape it off and kind of put the leftovers in there too. And, and uh, she did not give me a single bite. 
no plane going into my mouth because frankly that would be weird um i know how to use a spoon i have the ability to feed myself i know it's remarkable um and yet i think sometimes we we go to church and and if we aren't careful we have this mindset like feed me and and listen it ought to be a place where you get fed but the truth is all of us know how to use a spoon and we have got to feed ourselves and we got to do it on a daily basis all right useful for what well let's talk about these four dimensions and we're only going to get as far as we can go so uh it says it is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training now these four different words have are kind of four different dimensions of usefulness and there certainly is a little bit of overlap but there's also some unique dimensions to it and so the word teaching interesting it's it can be translated doctrine Uh, so we believe the bible isn't just the inspired word of god um Simply put, we believe it's the final authority in matters of faith and doctrine. That's what sola scriptura means. And, and, and so I, I know that sometimes when you use the word authority, that like this is the authoritative word of God, like some people bristle at that word. Like, I don't talk to me about authority. Um, but can I just, I think all of us have our own Bible one way or the other, whether the Bible's the Bible all of us have something that's an authority reference in our life. That this is the, and for many people, let's be honest, in our culture, they are a, an authority unto themselves. It's called moral relativism and how they think and how they feel. They are a law unto themselves and they believe that they are the final authority. Well, they are their own Bible then. Now, you know, for some people, it might be a political ideology or it might be a scientific theory, you know, and, and I don't know, maybe that seems like more sophisticated or something, but you're still a Bible. That's still, you, you still have an authority reference. Um, I think in our culture, one of the dominant authorities is they. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Well, they say. Well, who's they? I don't know who they, my mom used to, whenever I wanted to do something that she didn't really want me to do, she would say, they say. And I would always ask my mom, who is they? Like, isn't it funny? We live in a culture where we reference the all-knowing they. We don't really know who they is, but they say. We don't need to be afraid of the word authority. Everybody has an authority in their life. Um, C.S. Lewis said, don't be scared of the word authority. 99% of the things you believe, you believe on authority. The ordinary, ordinary man believes in the solar system, atoms, and the circulation of the blood on authority because the scientists say so. Every historical statement in the world is believed on authority. None of us has seen the Norman conquest or the, the, the defeat of the armada. We believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about them. And so we believe them on authority. A man who jibbed at authority and other things, as some people do in religion, would have to be content to know nothing all his life. 
when I was at the University of Chicago, my beliefs were, you know, basically dismissed kind of a priority. Like, it was tough to get a hearing. You know, if I'd, if I'd been in my philosophy classes or my science, well, the Bible says, you know, if that's my lead statement, like, sometimes in those academic environments, like, you can get laughed out of the classroom. Uh, but, but I think it's intellectually disingenuous. Um, Ravi Zachariah says, the same type of authority referencing is given by irreligious persons who also provide no defense for why their sources served as canonical for them. What I'm trying to say is, you can't prove or disprove that the Bible is the inspired word of God. That would take faith out of the equation. Um, But I have come to a place in my life after... A lot of study, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of study of other religions and a variety of texts. I've just come to a place that I have made a conscientious decision that Scripture is the final authority in matters of life and doctrine. And so when I disagree with it, I'm wrong. And that's what sola scriptura means. It means this is our book. We're people of the book. This is our final authority. All right, you still with me? All right, useful for teaching or for doctrine is kind of the common translation there. For rebuking. All right, now here we go. Uh, It is useful for rebuking. Is it ever? Now, the word rebuking or to reproof means, um, here are three translations. You can jot these down. It means to investigate, to interpret, or to convict. And I want to talk about all three of these. Uh, This is a book that gets in your business. It gets in your face. It steps on your toes. You can't ignore injustice anymore. You can't hate your enemies anymore. You can't live selfishly anymore. You can't ignore your sin anymore. It won't let you. It won't leave you alone. It gets in your business and it gets in your face and it rebukes you. See, This isn't just a book that you read. It reads you. It reads your thoughts. It reads your motives. Uh, It reads your mail. You don't just investigate it. It investigates you. You are under investigation. Uh, You don't just interpret it. It interprets you to yourself so you know who you are. But I think many of us approach the Bible the wrong way. We want to dissect the Bible instead of allowing the Bible to dissect us. Now, let me take this idea of rebuking, and kind of a fuller explanation of that is in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates. I'm going to come back to that word It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now that word, this idea of penetrating to the dividing of soul and spirit, um, that word penetrate means to go through. In other words, the goal of reading the Bible isn't to just get through the Bible. The goal of the Bi- reading through the Bible is to get the Bible through you. Okay, are you still with me? So we need to allow it to penetrate 
our soul, and our spirit. Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. You've got to allow the word of God to penetrate your heart. Can't just get it into your mind. You've got to get it into your heart. I'm going to take a step further. I think you've got to get it into your gut. I think that's what I want to talk about here for a minute. The word rebuke, investigate, interpret, it's the convict piece that really strikes me. I mean, it's hard to... I don't know. I mean, it's hard to read the Bible and not experience a measure of conviction because <laughs> you're measuring yourself against the gold standard. And, and, but I want to say it doesn't just mean to convict us of our sin. I think that's half of it. I think the other half is reading this book, studying this book, praying through this book until convictions are conceived in your spirit. Until what the Word of God becomes... What's in the Word becomes your conviction. I'll give you an example. Uh, this week, I had the opportunity to go to the White House and see a screening of a film called 58. Uh, it's a documentary, really, of injustice and extreme poverty, highlights some of what's happening in different parts of the world, and it was incredibly moving. I think one thing that came through that film was the conviction in the filmmakers who produced it. It was pretty obvious that their hearts were breaking for the things that break the heart of God. We can't just pretend that there aren't people suffering from religious persecution. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of the church. We we can't just pretend that there aren't children dying of malnutrition Tens of thousands every day. We can't, we can't ignore that. We've got to not just read Isaiah 58. And that's where 58 comes from. It comes from Isaiah 58. We can't just read it. We've got to live it. Now, part of what I love is that the film is just called 58. It's so simple. But the website, live58.com, it doesn't say read 58. Dot com. We don't need to read it. We need to live it. We need to allow it to rebuke our spirits. When, when was the last time we didn't just read the word, but we said, God, rebuke me? I don't want to just read it. I want to live it, but it starts by saying, God, rebuke me with your word. Break my heart. Do something in my spirit. You know what, that film, I don't know how God's going to use it. I, but but the, the makers of that film and kind of the, the people that have surrounded it, um, oh man, what a vision. Like we have, in, in the last decade, I think it is, extreme poverty, take, taken, we, we've um, lessened it by half. And, and the question posed by the film is, how, how, do we, how do we alleviate the other half? Well, it probably starts with us allowing Scripture to rebuke us coming under the conviction of the word and saying, here we go. So how, how does this become a conviction? Well, first of all, here's, here's my theory on spiritual maturity. It's so simple. First time you read something in the Bible, it's a theory. First time you read about the grace of God, it was theory. And then you experienced it. 
And it wasn't a theory anymore. It became the dominant reality of your life that began to shape who you are. And then it didn't just become a reality. Then it becomes a conviction. Man, other people have got to experience the grace of God. You know, the first time you read about the power of God, it was a theory. And in some instances, a theory that like, can that be true? Like, can someone actually be healed by praying for them? Like, can God still do miracles? And then you experience it, and it's not a theory anymore. It's your reality. And then it becomes a conviction. Then you become hungry for the presence of God. You want to see the power of God manifested through your life because it's not a theory anymore. It's a conviction. It's that way with everything. Well, how does it become a conviction? A couple of ways. If you're taking notes, jot these down. First of all, the Bible wasn't meant to be read through. It was meant to be prayed through. Huge difference. Don't just read through it. Pray through it. In other words, take these things and turn them into prayers. It wasn't meant to be a monologue like where God's just speaking to us. The way we turn into a dialogue is then we respond to God with a prayer. Can I just give you like the simplest example in the world? We got a little guy that's still a little afraid of the dark and a little bit afraid of being alone in his bedroom at night. So I take Philippians 4. I don't just read it to him. Pray it over him. In all things, by prayer and petition, thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Don't just read it to him. I pray it over him. And then I believe that the peace of God that transcends understanding will begin to fill his room with that presence of peace. The Bible wasn't just meant to be read. Secondly, it was meant to be meditated. Big difference between those two things. It can't just be a cursory reading. You've got to meditate on it to really allow it to rebuke you. And then finally, the Bible wasn't meant to be read. It was meant to be practiced. And when you begin to practice it, it becomes a conviction. Luke 6, 38. Given will be given unto you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. Used to be a theory to me. No longer. I have given long enough. I've taken enough steps of faith. I've been scared enough to know that you can't outgive God. It's one of our core values as a church, but it's really a core conviction. We just believe that. It's why we try to give to missions generously, even when we feel like we don't have anything to give. It's why when we weren't even a self-supporting church, we gave that first check to missions, a $50 check. It seemed like so much back then. This year, I think we're on pace to give more than a million dollars to missions. Listen, you can't outgive God. I have so many pastor friends and so many churches that have struggled so much during this recession. And my heart breaks for them, and then, and then we experienced a 40% giving in, uh, increase in giving last year? During, like, how does that happen? I, I, re- I honestly don't know, 
But I, but I believe that if we continue to give corporately as a church, the way that we're challenging ourselves to give personally, that God's going to deliver. It's a conviction. All right. I'm just not going to have time to do this whole thing. (laughs) And I love this whole thing. It's useful for correcting. You know what? I've found some people who want to correct the Bible. Let's be very careful how we approach the Word of God. I think some of us approach it almost in a morally superior fashion or intellectually superior fashion. And I think the only way to read it, um, well, James, James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Um, there, there's, um, there's a phrase in James that it means to bend over, bow down. Now, I love that for a couple of reasons. I think you need to study the Bible until your back is sore, occasionally. You get a sore back by just bending over. You ever read a really good book and you're like, man, my back is sore. But I also think it's a posture of humility. I've got to tell you this. There are some verses that will, God will not reveal the meaning until you obey them. And when you obey them, it'll be a revelation like, okay, so that's what he meant. But you've got to obey it. You've got to put it into practice if you're really going to understand what it means. Um, all right, our, our time is just getting gone. It's useful for training. One little thought here and then tie this baby in a knot. This is really important, okay? And I think as a parent um, of two teenagers and a, and a younger one, um, I think this is where the reality of it comes into play, that there's going to come a moment where my kids aren't under my ceiling. They can't lean on me. They've got to have their own experience with God. I can't, I can't play helicopter parent. I can't overprotect them any longer. And really, it comes down to this. Um, here it is. I believe the Bible is like our external hard drive. But God has given us an internal hard drive, and it's called a conscience. Now, I went into a program on my computer this week that I hadn't used in a long time, and guess what it said? It said, would you like to install some updates? And there were a lot of them. You'll read this book for a while. There's a lot of updates. When we study, when we meditate, when we allow the Word to rebuke us, when, when it corrects us, when it trains us, what it's saying is this. You are taking this word, you are downloading it, you are installing it onto this internal hard drive so that when you are living your life, there's a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. You've hidden God's word in your heart. Yes, you're still gonna make some mistakes, but you have a conscience that's been trained by the word of God. Take that word correct and just put the word course in front of it it's our gps it's like the spoken word that jeremy did it it, it's it's the thing that helps us um, make those critical decisions 
to stay on the straight and narrow path. All right, I just need to end with this. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The goal of God's word is good works. God is not going to say, well read, good and faithful servant. Well read. Well read. He's not going to say, well said, either. Not well thought. Well done. Well done. Thoroughly quit for every good work. Man, the problem is, is that we read it in this 21st century Western mentality as if there's some difference between knowing and doing. Did you know that in the Jewish mentality, there is no word for knowing and doing that's differentiated from each other. If you don't know it, you don't do it. If you don't do it, you didn't know it. There's no difference between... Knowing is doing. Doing is knowing. Maybe a way of saying it is this. You're, you're the fifth gospel. You are Acts 29. You are the only Bible that some people may ever read. It's our job to read this word and then to what? Then to translate it into our lives. Now, those who created the 58 film, oh, they're doing a good job, I think, translating Isaiah 58. You know, and I I think all of us maybe need to find what is that deepest conviction? What is that God-ordained passion that's birthed in our spirit? You know what, by the way, I think a lot of us get frustrated when other people aren't as passionate about some of our passions as we are. That's why we're the body of Christ. Because we can't be all things to all people. Now, we need to read the the whole counsel of God's word. We need to read, study, meditate, the whole thing. But there are going to be certain parts of it that that's going to be our unique com, uh, contribution, that you are a unique translation of the Bible. And so I think it starts with the Bible is the authoritative word of God, final authority in, word, in matters of doctrine and faith, sola scriptura. But then let's live this thing out. The Bible wasn't meant to be audited. Do not merely listen to the word. It actually is that word translated means to audit. Don't merely listen. Don't audit the word of God. Do what it says. Let's pray. Father, help us. We need your help. God, I pray that in these moments that maybe we would have a renewed appreciation for this God-breathed, inspired book that we call the Bible. That for so many of us, all too often, sits in a drawer, sits on a bedstand, and maybe doesn't get opened as much as it could or should. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir something in our hearts, just a renewed desire to know you, a spiritual hunger to seek you and to find you in the pages of your scripture. 
God, inspire us by your inspired word. Teach us. Rebuke us. Correct us. Train us so that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In Jesus' name, amen.